We'll pick up in uh, Colossians 3, where we left off last week, with verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you that we can read it loudly apart from persecution this morning. I think that we can gather and hold high the authority of Scripture. Pray for Pastor Wayne as he comes and speaks through us as a, to us as a conduit of your word and your authority, that you would speak to us. You convict our hearts and assault our souls that we might be conformed into the image of Christ so that you might be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, keep your Bibles open to Colossians 3, if you would. We have seen in this letter that is written to the church, you the church, by the Holy Spirit through Paul, that those who are raised with Christ, verse 1, set their minds on things above, verse 2, put to death what is earthly, any idolatrous mindset that was a part of your past life, that's verse 5, which means you put away you know, your anger, your wrath, your malice, slander, obscenity, obscene talk and lying as verses eight and nine why why do you do that it's no longer who you are that's in the aorist tense by the way which means this change of identity is past tense therefore this is not a command this is not a command it's a fact all he's saying is look don't keep wearing stuff that makes you look like your former self to put that in physical terms, what if I came out here this morning wearing a, a polyester leisure suit with bell-bottom pants and a silk shirt with five-inch collar? My kids would be mortified. And you would be wondering, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? This is what I wore in college. I've kept it. I put it back on this morning. Do you not like it? You were in college in the 70s. Why are you dressed like that today? Same is true of your spiritual life. You know, when tongues get wagging, anger gets boiling to the point of, of um, wrath filled with malice, slanderous speech, obscene talk, lies, All that stuff starts coming out of the heart, through your mouth, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. When all of that stuff starts happening, it makes you look and sound like your old selfish person that you were before you were born again in Christ. Now, if that's not true of you today, why would you wear those outdated attitudes from the past in your present life? Why? See, that's his point. Just as physically dressing in a polyester suit from 50 years ago makes us appear outdated, spiritual garments of our past make us look out of place. If we are new creations in Christ. So whenever you are, are speaking your mind, whenever you're letting people know what you think and how you feel and, and uh, 
life is, is still all about you instead of honoring the one who recreated you for his glory, when you do that, it just doesn't look right. That's why Paul says, put to death the old mindset that he calls earthly because that's the way people of this earth behave. Sexual immorality, that's part of them. Impurity, passions, evil desires, coveting. Those are all characteristics of an idolatrous mindset. And he says, past tense, that is not who you are. That's been put to death in Christ. The old you is when you behave as a descendant of Adam with your selfish attitudes. But Christ doesn't reform you. This is not about reformation. This is about resurrection. Christ has recreated you. Look at verse 10. Have put on. That's past tense. You have put on the new self. Which is being. And that, that word there means it's continually happening. That you are renewed in knowledge after the image of, its, of your creator. Think of it this way. In your physical birth you bear likeness to your parents, the genes they carry, you receive. The short family just had their baby this week. And, and though that baby is a part of their family, I was just talking to their, the baby's grandparents back here that I went to school with, that baby is a part of their family, but the resemblance may not be immediately recognized. However, as that child grows you're going to see the resemblance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see, I see your, your granddad's eyes. I, I see you are good looking like your grandmother. I see the resemblance. And so as that child physically progresses, you begin to see the resemblance more. That's Paul's point. That's why he writes to the Corinthian church. Though outwardly we're wasting away, okay? We're continuing to age and look that way. But you know what? Inwardly, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. We're growing in the likeness of the one who created us. That's why the way we think, the way we live, how we see people, it all is beginning to bear a distinct resemblance to how our creator sees them. <clears throat> and how radical is this progression? How radical is it? Well, to be honest, we no longer see people the way the world sees them through racial barriers. That's what he means in verse 11 about Greek or Jew. We don't see them through religious barriers, circumcised or uncircumcised. We don't see them through cultural barriers. And he uses barbarians and Scythians as examples. And we don't see them through social barriers. And he uses the term slave or free. This renewed in knowledge, back in verse 10, means that as we spiritually feast upon his word, and you do that, right? Our knowledge of him feeds our minds and fuels our desire. And so we yield to the Holy Spirit rather than quenching him, and we become like our Creator. Because he's recreated us in Christ. That the barriers that exist among fallen men disappear in Christ. They no longer exist in the new you. 
because you've been renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. See, this is the partnership we have with Christ. We're not reformed, we're created. Let me give you an example. In Paul's day, everyone was either a Greek, because Alexander the Great had Hellenized the known world of that day, 300 300 years earlier. So you were either a Greek or you were a Roman, you were a Jew. And no self-respecting Jew would enter the house of a Greek, regardless of what their nationality was. They wouldn't even eat a meal cooked by a Greek. They wouldn't buy meat prepared by a Greek. And you know what? If they left Israel, when they returned, they would shake the Greek dust from their feet, brush it off of their clothes, and get it off of their sandals. And the Greeks didn't think too highly of them either. I mean, there was major racial tension throughout that culture. So the Holy Spirit says through Paul that in Christ, in Christ, this racial distinction doesn't exist anymore. Why? Well, because the Lord is no respecter of persons. That's why. And you, you being in Christ, you're no respecter of persons. Kind of like as King Arthur said to his knights, We're all equal distance from one another. That's why it was the Knights of the Round Table. The Jew was created by the Lord for a purpose. You remember that? He calls Abram out from the the gods of his father. They were idolaters like everybody else on earth. And he calls him out of that and gives him a son of promise, Isaac. And to Isaac, he's going to give twin boys and choose one over the other before either are born so that you will know that your redemption is a matter of his grace. And when he chooses Jacob, he'll change him. And he'll give him a new name, Israel. And to him, he's going to give 12 sons. Which one of those sons will he choose? Which one will it be to be in the lineage of Christ's incarnate arrival? Judah. Judah. That's why Christ is known as the Lion of Judah. And that's the reason they're called Jews. And after the Lord grows this nation to two and a half million and that Egyptian incubator. He delivers them from their bondage beneath the blood of one without blemish. And then he's going to give them their law. He's going to give them his law that is a reflection of his holiness. And then he's going to give them a tabernacle where blood is shed to bring new life to those who have broken the law. And this good news of redemption is going to be for every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth. That's what he meant when he told Abraham. He said, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That's what he's talking about, the coming of Christ. Now, a Jew in this day in which the letter to the Colossae church is being written, a Jew to that day would be circumcised. And many of them would continue to observe the dietary laws that they practiced for 15 centuries. A Gentile, a Greek, was most likely not circumcised. And they would not observe Jewish dietary laws. But in this body of new yous, the church, it's not going to matter. It doesn't matter. Now, how inclusive is this going to be? Well, even barbarians and Scythians are going to be a part of the body of Christ? You've got to be kidding me. In the Roman Empire, a barbarian which is an onomatopoetic word. You know what I mean by that? Uh, Onomatopoeia is when a word sounds like what it means, like the word buzz is an onomatopoeia. Well, barbarian is an onomatopoetic word because 
people who were not as articulate in their communication in Greek, the Greek language that had been introduced for 300 years, when they weren't articulate in Greek, but they spoke another language, they sounded like kind of like if you hear somebody speaking another language today, you don't understand what they're saying, you know, and it just sounds to the educated Greek, the word barbarian was a term of derision. It, it, it was a, a way of referring to somebody as being illiterate. These are people who are culturally beneath you. That's a barbarian. Let's take it a step further. A Scythian. A Scythian? Really? Those were the worst of barbarians. The, those folks were the ones that were from up north around Russia. These people, according to Tertullian, drank the blood of their enemies. They made napkins out of their scalps. They made bowls from which they ate out of their skulls. These were among the most feared, most hated nomadic people on the face of the earth. In the Greek theater, a Corinthian was a drunk. A Scythian was as filthy a human being as you could be. This verse is a strong statement. Even a smelly slob like a Scythian is going to be a part of the body of Christ? You've got to be kidding me. You want me to go in and worship with them? Work with them? fellowship with them, have them into my home? Yes. Yes. There's going to be no racial barrier in Christ. And there's going to be no social barrier. That's why he uses the term slave and free. In the Roman Empire, there were 60 million who were considered slaves. Um, people within the empire who had no standing, no power, and no rights. As a matter of fact, every time the Romans conquered a nation, they made the people of that nation the slaves of their state. As a matter of fact, Israel was a slave state. They were a vassal nation to Rome. So how many books in the New Testament do you think speaks to slaves? Do you know? Seven. Seven. Why? Slaves in Rome comprised the majority of the early church. So how do those born again in Christ, how do they impact this culture? Well, when you come together to worship and you see a Gentile, a Greek, when you see a Roman citizen, when you see a Jew who is a former member of the Sanhedrin, when you see a wealthy landowner and you see people who work his land for him, all worshiping together in Christ, I mean, how does that fellowship look versus what you see in the world? Have you ever read the book of Philemon? It's considered one of the most astounding social documents ever written because it's written by the Holy Spirit. It's written by the Holy Spirit through Paul to a guy named Philemon who has a runaway slave, Onesimus, 
who is now a prisoner in Rome. And while a prisoner in Rome, Paul shares the gospel with him. And Onesimus becomes a Christian. And now Paul is going to send him back to Philemon, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. What kind of testimony did that have within the Roman Empire as to what new creations were like? I mean, these people have been completely transformed from who they once were to the point that they are resembling, you can see the resemblance of their creator in them. And it's amazing. In Carthage in 202 AD, Perpetua was a young lady who was born into a noble family who became a Christian. Her servant, Philosatius, also became a Christian. They took both of these young women and they put them in the arena. And they are going to die a martyr's death because of their commitment to Christ. And as they are standing in the midst of the arena, entertainment for the culture. Wild beasts are set loose. And as they go and rip them apart physically, those two young girls holding hands with one another are embracing one another because they are both new creations in Christ. This is the reason that, that the Holy Spirit through Paul addresses Galatia the way that he does. He says that neither male or female either. You know, when Peter told husbands you to love your wives as, as fellow heirs of grace, why would he have to do that? Why would Paul say something like that? Well, because women in the Roman culture were second-class citizens. But it wasn't true in Christ. Now, men and women have different God-given roles. They are created differently, and they are given different responsibilities. But that doesn't mean one is more significant than the other. And you know what? That was quite a statement in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, they'd never seen anything like that on earth. Except through Israel. Say, Israel? Yes. You go back into the Old Testament. Remember the daughters of Zelophehad? As you're reading through your Bible, you're going through the book of Numbers. And you remember he had five girls and no sons. And so who's going to inherit his property? He's a member of the tribe of Manasseh. When he dies, where is his property going to go? Well, since he has no son, his property is going to go to his brother instead of his daughters. Why? Why? Well, the fear is if these girls inherit this land that was given to Manasseh. Remember the land was divided up when they come into the promised land. Each tribe gets a section except for the Levites because they are scattered out in Levitical cities throughout the land as, uh, as the ones who are to administer um, and, and, and serve the Lord and his word to the people. So they're scattered throughout, but all of the rest of the land is divided into tribes. And Manasseh's got this one section here. And if these girls inherit this, this section of Manasseh's land, and then they marry young men of other tribes, that land will be lost to the tribe of Manasseh. They don't want that. But the girls protest they understand the, the, the significance of, of redrawing geographical boundaries within the nation. But they protest. And one of the daughters, Hugla, goes with her sisters to Moses and says, you know, why, why must our dad's name be lost simply because we are girls? 
Why are we not allowed to inherit the land that is to be ours? It's our family. We're part of Manasseh. And Moses says, I'll check with the Lord and get back to you on that. And you know what the Lord said? The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You go to Numbers 27 and look that up and write out into the margins. This is your first equal rights amendment right here in Scripture in the Old Testament. The Lord designed men and women differently on purpose. They have different responsibilities on purpose. Those differences do not mean that they are not equal in the body of Christ. You understand that? Here's his point. The new you, the new you, the church, those of you who are born again in Christ, you will now see people the way the Lord sees them. No male or female. No Jew or Gentile. Even the worst of Gentiles, Scythians. Even the barbaric and illiterate within the Greek culture. Even the slaves, powerless as they are within the Roman Empire. Whether someone is born into a conquering nation or they're born into a nation that's been conquered. All of them are in need of God's grace, freely given in Christ. And that destroys all racial, religious, cultural, and social barriers that man has created in his sin. So on what basis do we consider one man more significant than another? What basis? What right do we have to do that? Now, when the world hears this, and then they don't see it in the church, they scoff at the gospel and they blaspheme our Lord because of the hypocrisy. In other words, when you see a group of 40-year-old white men arm in arm around a coffee pot forming the kind of clique even the world can produce at Rotary, they say, there's no difference between the church and the culture. Yet when they look into the church like this one, and they see different classes of people, they see different races, they see people from various nations here, They see people worshiping and working together in unison, whether they're old or they're young, whether they're black or they're white, whether they're Hispanic or they're Asian, it doesn't matter. Whether they're male or female, they're side by side, side by side in in genuine love, genuine love, according to the truth of God's word. Now, now we have credibility to proclaim the gospel. You see how verse 11 ends? Christ is all and in all. He makes it clear Christianity is not a reformation, it's a resurrection. The old you died. That's what we just portrayed in these baptisms. The old you died and was buried. It is the new you that is raised to walk in newness of life with Christ. I mean, you were once at enmity with God, but now you're at peace with him because of Christ. You once lived immorally, didn't you? Whether in thought or in deed, you were immoral. But now you seek righteousness. Why? Well, this new you is not behaving like the old you because that's not who you are anymore. Now, let me just clear up something here that that we got to make sure we don't misunderstand. This new you is not just a moral issue whereby we make better choices now than what we did before. You know, I used to be immoral, but now I'm not anymore. 
that's true of Christians, but that's not Christianity. Are you with me on this? It's not a matter of philosophy whereby we begin to think differently. Now, that's true of Christians. We do think differently. We do see the world differently, but that's not Christianity. It's not just a matter of community. You know, I, I used to run with this group of people over here, but man, they, they, they live a bad lifestyle. And, and I'm running with this group over here who goes to church. That's true of Christians a lot of times. But it's not Christianity. It is not a matter of formality. Whereby I used to be a part of this religion, but now I'm going to this church. That's true a lot of times with Christians, but that is not Christianity. Am I confusing you? Christianity is not about reforming the old you. Christianity is the resurrection of the new you. See, it's common to think of Christianity in terms of list. You know, what we do, what we don't do, which leads to kind of a legalism, sometimes to asceticism, sometimes to Phariseeism. It leads people to be what Christ talked about in Matthew 7 when he said, Oh, many are going to say to me in that day, Oh, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many wonderful works in your name? And I'm going to say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't know you. have never known you. You've never been a part of my body. Those people tried to live a reformational life rather than a resurrected life. See, that stuff gives the appearance of being Christian. But all those things can be done without a change of heart. And so Paul's point is this, Christ is your life, verse 4. That's why you put to death those attitudes of, of idolatry that lead to immorality. That's why you put away hatred that comes out of your heart, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It's all going away. It's by the grace of God you've put on the new self that is being renewed day by day in your knowledge of the one who has recreated you for his glory. Therefore, you're now seeing the world very differently than you did before. Christ, who is all and in all, unifies us into one body. Is this clear yet? If not, let me, let me illustrate it for you. But before you see evangelism take place in the early church, which would be Acts 13, what do you see? What, take, what precedes Acts 13? Well, Peter is sent to a Gentile named Cornelius. Acts 10, right? What happens? What happens when he goes to see Cornelius? There's a protest. That's Acts 11. Major protest. Peter, what are you doing? And Peter said, the Lord sent me to him, and who was I that I could stand in God's way? And if you keep reading, it says they fell in silence and glorified the Lord. Now, what happened? Well, the Lord reveals through his people that it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're Greek. Were they circumcised or uncircumcised? Who cares? Circumcision was a sign to the Jews of a promise that's been fulfilled in Christ. Well, are they well-educated and well-spoken, respectable members within the culture? Or do they babble in, in different languages and are, are kind of 
economically beneath us. Who cares? Who cares? Christ is all and in all. That's what matters. The new you comes together collectively as the church created for God's glory. So the question this morning for each of us is, what is your position? What is your position here? Are you in Adam? See, Raleigh understands this. In Adam, I was a sinner. I still saw things the way sinners see things in this world. Or are you in Christ? See, that's all that matters. Frankly, when you come here, I don't care. I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care where you live. I don't care how much you make or don't make. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that matters to people in the world. That's not who we are in Christ. It's not. That which divides in the world is to be put to death in the lives of those who are new creations. Let me give you an example. Several years ago in the Deep South, there was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary who began doing expository preaching. And you know what that is, right? That's what draws you here is expository teaching of God's word. Verse by verse, handling what the Lord hath said, theonustos, right? And so this church down there in the Deep South began doing that. And word got out in, in the black community that there was a church over here that was teaching God's word verse by verse. And so this drew some of them. And then it drew more. And then it drew more. And the next thing you know, in that little church, the whole racial population of the church had shifted. And there were some people in that church that kind of got uncomfortable with that. They're in the deep south. And um, the pastor called for a church meeting. And he said, uh, we, we, have a, we have a problem here. And I'm not going to make the call because you're going to be here long after I'm gone. So I'm gonna wa- I want you to make the call. I want you to make the call. And here's the question. Are you going to be a church where the Lord is worshipped? Where the Bible is obeyed? Where the gospel is honored? Or are you going to be just another little white Protestant fellowship in the deep south? Which one's it going to be? You decide. And he left the room. One of the older members of the congregation arose and he said, you know, we've been greatly blessed since this church started teaching God's word. I think we need to honor him and his word by obeying what he has said. That's Acts 11. That's Acts 11. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Christians don't do that. Religious people do that. Church-going people a lot of times will do that. But those in Christ, they don't do that. They don't. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And you know what? That little church in the deep south exploded in spiritual growth and in numerical growth. Now watch this. If you look in Acts 13, verse 1, I want you to see something here. Evangelism begins, and it's in the church at Antioch. Who in the world are the teachers there? There were in the church at Antioch teachers. Who were the teachers? Barnabas. You know who Barnabas is. He is a Jew, friend of Paul. Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius 
of Cyrene from North Africa, and Manan, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's his Hebrew name, Saul, a Pharisee who hated Herod. He's talking about Herod Antipas here, the, the puppet king that Rome established to oversee Galilee. All of Israel deeply resented Herod. And Manan was a good friend of Herod. They went to the same kindergarten together. They played in the same sandbox together. They grew up together. Nobody is more dog and cat to Paul, who, which is his Roman name. Nobody's more dog and cat to Paul than Manan. And yet Saul, also called Paul, there's his Hebrew and his, his Roman name together, communes with this guy, teaches beside him, works with him. Because they're both new creations in Christ. Do you see this? A Jew, a Jew from Israel, Barnabas. Gentiles from North Africa, Simeon and Lucius. A former Pharisee, Saul, with a former Herodian, Manan. Loving one another? Worshiping the Lord together? I mean, how does that happen? Well, it makes perfect sense when you understand that they are new creations in Christ, who is all and in all. There was an old story, and this is going to seem very outdated to you because the father is reading the National Geographic. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, and his son was bugging him, trying to get his attention and, and so forth. And that, this is before uh, video games and, and so forth. Otherwise, his son would be in the other room and wouldn't care. And the father wouldn't be reading. He'd be watching, you know, NFL football or something. But, but back in this time, this guy's reading the National Geographic. His son is bugging him, trying to get his attention. And he gets so frustrated that he, he takes this picture of a world uh, out of the magazine, rips it out, and he tears it into pieces and throws it on the floor and, he, and says, here, son, put this back together, kind of like his own homemade puzzle. And he thought that would keep him busy for a while. That's a whole bunch of pieces, and that's not going to be easy for him to understand where all these pieces of the world come together, and, and so that's going to give me more time to do my reading. A couple of minutes later, here comes this kid with the world all taped together perfectly. And the father can't believe it. I mean, do I have a genius on my hand, or what is going on here? You know, how'd you do that so quickly? And the kid said, oh, Dad, it was easy. Very easy. There's a picture of a man on the back side. And when I put together the man, the world just came together. That's what the Lord did. He put together the incarnate arrival of Christ, the man. As a result... Those who are reconciled in him brings the world together perfectly. They put to death sexual immorality. They put to death materialistic mindsets. They put to death lying tongues. They put to death racist attitudes. By the grace of God and the glory of his name, as new creations, they live, they worship, they serve together in the body of Christ. This is not something that we can humanly manufacture. This is something that takes place within us. It's who we are. It's the new you. 
It's the new you who's born again in Christ. Now, if that's not true of you, then you may have some questions this morning. And that's why we have the Connect table. That's why I'll be available today and all this week. I won't be available this afternoon because uh, I'll be preparing for class tonight. Uh, and I'm also going to be at a, at a family's home. But uh, I would encourage you if, you, uh, uh, if you're not doing anything tonight at 6 o'clock, I don't care if you're doing something else or not, I'd come and, and let's meet together and let's just go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Not all tonight, but we'll start it tonight. And over the next uh, few weeks, we'll, we'll, it will begin to make sense to you. And if you've never done that, I think you'll find it helpful. So I'd encourage you to come tonight. If you have any questions, you can feel free to come and see me. I'll be glad to meet with you this week. Stand with me as we pray together. Thank you, Lord, for making us new creations. Oh, Lord, thank you for renewing us day by day that through the reading of your word and yielding rather than quenching your spirit within us, we actually are who you have created us to be. And we're grateful. Oh, we're so grateful, Lord, for this new life that we now have in Christ. For those this morning who may not understand what the new creation entails, because Christ is not their life. He is only someone they've, they've, they've tried to add to an earthly existence that, frankly, is still all about them. Oh, Lord, I would ask for your mercy and grace to bring them to repentance. Give to them, Lord, a childlike faith like Ivy and Raleigh have, like I have, that they might come to know you, that they might come to know you. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.